0: Welcome to episode 4 of Real Gone. In this episode we're going to veer away from discussing music almost entirely and focus on the establishment of the area south of Houston Street known as Soho as the centre of habitation for other artists living in the city in the early 1970s. We'll discuss how the physical features of the abandoned industrial loft buildings made it attractive for artists to live and work in this downtown neighbourhood and how the influx of art galleries, both commercial and cooperative, shifted the centre of the New York art world from Midtown to Soho. The consolidation of artists in the area helped create a new politicised community that managed to spearhead opposition to the Lower Manhattan Expressway project, saving a large section of downtown Manhattan from destruction and economic abandonment, and in doing so, preserving the area's cultural importance for decades to come. (laughs) Buying and renting space in Soho and the surrounding areas around 1970 was relatively cheap. The founding member of Fluxus, George Machinus, had been resident in Soho since 1965 when he emigrated from his native Lithuania. His Flux House Cooperative's operation functioned as a property acquisition project that had, from 1966 onwards, acquired over 20 lofts and houses for artists and arts centres, with supportive grants from the National Endowment for the Arts and donations from charitable patrons, the J.M. Kaplan Foundation. These abandoned lofts and buildings were bought mostly from failing manufacturing companies or their absentee landlords, and were envisaged by machinists, as spaces for habitation and creation by artists working across a range of media. This vision was largely in opposition to the prevailing zoning law, which dictated that Soho was a non-residential area. The failure of industry in the area had enabled civic planners like Robert Moses to push for the creation of the Lower Manhattan Expressway, which, if implemented, would have obliterated much of Lower Manhattan's loft district. The efforts of machinists and loft artists resident in the area deserve to be credited, as it was their opposition to the expressway, which swung the balance towards the city's decision to leave the loft district undisturbed. Soho then became a fertile breeding ground for much of the creative artistry that flourished in Manhattan through the 1970s. As we mentioned in an earlier episode, the artistic renaissance of Soho and the adjacent neighbourhoods of Noho and Tribeca in the 1970s and beyond had its roots in the urban crisis which New York faced, along with other American cities in the post-war years, where deindustrialization, suburbanization, and the failures of urban renewal had created a desolate landscape. Soho's industrial decline was rooted in specific industries such as rag and waste paper recycling, warehousing and light manufacturing, which were in a state of decline, as well as a general unsuitability of loft buildings for modern industry. Deindustrialization in Soho had created a dense collection of vacant loft buildings close to the amenities of Greenwich Village, Little Italy, and Chinatown. These nearby residential neighbourhoods made living in Soho more attractive than taking up residence in an isolated standalone district. The transformation of Soho began in the late 1950s when painters, sculptors, musicians and other mixed-media artists began moving to the neighborhood's vacant industrial loft buildings. The best known was minimalist sculptor Donald Judd who owned an entire building on Prince Street. Other art world luminaries included Alex Katz. By the early 1960s, there was a significant artistic community living in Soho. By 1968, artists occupied well over 200 lofts in the 12-block area south of Housen Street. The Soho artists' community had grown in unison with the flourishing art scene in New York City following the end of World War II. In the late 1940s, the avant-garde had developed around abstract expressionism, which broke formal traditions and helped shift the cultural centre of the West from Paris to New York. The ascendancy of New York art was rooted in the growth of the United States as a superpower in the post-war era. The growing ubiquity of paintings by Jackson Pollock and Willem de Kooning, together with the grand colour-filled canvases of Mark Rothko and Barnett Newman, reflected the standing of the United States as the most powerful nation in the world. This art was deeply rooted in New York City. New York's cultural hegemony as a centre for artistic experimentation was maintained in the 1950s with the assistance of commercial and cooperative galleries, curators, and art schools. A thriving art scene had developed around 10th Street in Greenwich Village. Artists congregated in the Cedar Tavern, showing their work at galleries in the surrounding neighbourhood. Museums displaying abstract art and modern art also thrived. The Guggenheim Museum's iconic Frank Lloyd Wright Design Building on the Upper East Side opened in 1959. Donald Judd and Andy Warhol maintained this successful artistic innovation throughout the 1960s. Residing in Soho allowed artists to live cheaply, but close to Greenwich Village, the hub for artistic activity. Large, open interior spaces and loft buildings were particularly attractive to artists. These spaces were perfect for storing the outsized pieces that New York artists were producing in the 1960s and 1970s. Ample windows provided natural light and the open floor plans and 16-foot ceilings gave painters, sculptors and dancers space to work. Although these were industrial buildings, the cast-iron facades were aesthetically beautiful and distinctly urban for those seeking to establish their home in the heart of the city. When businesses such as cloth manufacturers and paper recycling companies went into decline, the owners of those businesses, who often owned the building they operated from, rented or sold unused loft space to artists. This occurred most frequently in the northwest section of Soho, near West Broadway and Green Street, where lofts were smaller and industrial vacancies higher. Financial constraints and the need for large, flexible studios led many artists to convert their lofts into combined living and workspaces. Garment manufacturers, machine shops and plastics warehousing concerns were abandoning these late 19th century structures due to their insufficiency for modern commercial and industrial requirements. Others were simply going out of business in the tense post-war economy. Many artists moving to Soho were educated from economically stable financial backgrounds. Most knew enough about New York to transform their loft into a functional residence, and many knew other residents in the area. Those attending local art schools and colleges gained knowledge about the secrets of Soho. Many artists did, however, have to support themselves through additional jobs, often by way of teaching in local YMCA's public schools and art classes at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and other such venues. Loft owner Barbara Haskell was a curator at the Whitney Museum of American Art. Painter and photographer Hirotsugu Aoki, who owned a co-op at 132 Green Street, worked on his art, while his wife, Teresa O'Connor, worked as an English professor at the City College of New York. Aoki eventually became a special effects supervisor, working on films such as Back to the Future. Composer Philip Glass worked in his cousin's plumbing business before his career took off, and operated a removals company with his friend Steve Reich, named Chelsea Light Moving, while both were launching their career as modern classical composers. Loft living in Soho was illegal and contravened zoning legislation. Facing the threat of eviction, artists organised politically to defend their right to live in the area. As a result, they created innovative arguments about the role of arts in society and the place of creativity in the austere post-war economy. Loft living, they argued, was to be encouraged and legalized because it allowed for the growth of communities whose cultural products gave the city a new identity and drove a new urban economy. City leaders began to take artists' demands more seriously and enacted policies that enabled them to live legally in Soho. In 1961, a series of fires in loft buildings led to widespread inspections by the New York City Fire Department and threats of eviction for many. In response... Artists from and around Soho formed the Artists' Tenants' Association, or the ATA, to advocate for their right to live legally in these industrial lofts. In 1964, an ATA-led strike and march on City Hall prompted Mayor Robert Wagner to create the Artists-in-Residence AIR programme. This was the city's first policy to protect artists living in lofts from eviction. The ETA worked with city and state officials to amend building and zoning codes to facilitate loft residences. Low Soho residents comprised the majority of artists who converted lofts into residential properties. The ETA membership included artists from Midtown, Greenwich Village and other parts of downtown Manhattan. The ETA also worked to rebrand the image of loft dwellers from subversive outsiders to hard-working family oriented contributors to the New York's economic and cultural lifeblood. The ATA were savvy in their approach, enlisting vocal support from well-renowned public figures who portrayed themselves as patrons of the arts, such as former First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt. Mrs. Roosevelt spoke passionately on behalf of the artists and decried bureaucratic policies that would see them evicted from their homes. These celebrity endorsements added significant credibility to the ATA's membership and gave them added political clout. The 1964 Artist Strike was intended to demonstrate the Soho artists' influence on the more economically powerful actors in the art world, namely the commercial galleries. The ETA requested that its artist members not take part in any public artistic activity in New York, including exhibiting art appearing on public TV or radio. It encouraged members not to send any art to commercial galleries in New York for sale, and likewise asked galleries to refuse the sale of New York art outside the city thus depriving New York City of the revenue generated by the sales of local artworks. The outcome of the AIR program demonstrated that this type of collective political action would be effective for the Soho artists, although gains were incremental. In the late 1960s, artists began buying entire buildings in Soho through cooperatives. Members of co ops still faced potential eviction due to the illegality of residing in space zoned as industrial. However, Ownership of the building meant that artist owners would retain a commercial asset, even if this was far from a safe investment, and even if raising finance in such a building was problematic. Ownership of loft buildings through cooperatives meant that artists could retain the benefit of alterations and improvements they made to the spaces they occupied. A member's share in the cooperative would usually entitle them to occupy one or more units in the building, and members would then take collective responsibility for maintenance of the building. This model fit with the ethos of the close-knit artistic community in Soho. A strong unified spirit began to pervade the area, the Spring Street Bar becoming a social hub. The Soho artists' community developed a philosophy that stemmed from the counterculture of the 1960s. People turned factories into homes, then opened galleries and new businesses where there had been none before. There was an anti-administration feeling. The risk being taken by artists who had moved their families into the loft buildings and invested capital in carrying out renovations was offset by the artists' belief that there was such a critical mass of people living in the lofts the city would never evict them en masse. This safety-in-numbers approach did turn out to be well-founded, and influenced others in the surrounding neighbourhoods of what would become known as Tribeca and Noho to adopt a similar approach. The illegality of loft homes meant it was nearly impossible to obtain traditional mortgage loan financing. The cooperatives gave artists the opportunity to pool their collective resources. This method of securing occupation would accelerate in the 1960s and the most influential figure behind this strategy was George Mishunis. George Mishunis was a Lithuanian immigrant who obtained a BA in architecture and design from Pittsburgh's Carnegie Institute of Technology in 1954. He returned to New York and immersed himself in the local art world, taking architectural classes at the New School while working in architectural firms. While studying at the New School, Machinists met other artists including Lamont Young, George Brecht and Alan Krapau, who were interested in performance art across multiple disciplines. Machinists coined the term Fluxus for their new international avant-garde movement, which fused elements of data and other art movements. Their focus was on transforming the mundanity of daily life into art, and by doing so they intended to express the idea that any person could be and should be an artist, and that artistic expression and its enjoyment should not be the exclusive reserve of an educated upper class. Machunas turned his attention to the problem of sourcing housing for artists to live and work in. In 1963, he developed his Flux House plan to provide space for artists by renovating industrial lofts in Soho. He planned to organise not-for-profit cooperatives for artists, ran adverts and local papers to attract investors, people willing to share in the cost of acquisition and renovation. Machinists faced obstacles. Living in Soho was illegal, and although he claimed he would work to change the state and city regulations to rectify this problem, legalisation would not come for decades. Furthermore, real estate syndication laws required that to offer shares in a cooperative, the organizer and the sponsor had to prepare documents, including a cooperative offering plan, a copy of the bylaws, and a proprietary release, along with other financial details, and send these to the New York State Attorney General for approval. The approval process would then generally take up to one year to be processed. It may come as no surprise to hear that Machinist did not adhere to many of these legal obligations. He was unprepared to wait the length of time that would have been necessary for legal sanction. Instead, he falsely organised the buildings as agricultural cooperatives, which were easier to establish as cooperative residences, and filed the paperwork with the New York Department of State. It was unlikely the actual co-ops organised by Machinus would have been approved by the Attorney General. It was only after receiving down payments from future co-op members that Machinus actually went about purchasing the relevant buildings and then formed the co-ops. This meant Machinus had been collecting money for co-ops that did not exist and for buildings they did not own. Machinus obtained some grant funding from the J.M. Kaplan Fund, a major New York foundation with a focus on the arts and artists' housing in particular, to assist with the loft purchase costs. Over time, his failure to follow proper procedure, as well as his overall management style, led to tensions with co op residents and the local authorities. He often insisted on being appointed as contractor for major renovation works. He also blatantly disregarded the law relating to handling of payments he received from co op members. Since he viewed Flux House as one large business venture, he used payments residents paid to him for one building to secure purchase deposits for another. In 1974, the Attorney General investigated his failure to properly register his co-ops and his legal handling of members' fees. He did, however, continue his involvement in loft conversions through partners until 1978. Despite his questionable business practices, Machinus' energy, focus and knowledge was effective and influential. He managed to organise cooperatives at 16 buildings on Worcester Street, Grand Street, Prince Street, Green Street, and Broome Street, all located in Soho. As more artists moved to Soho during the 1960s, the collective created a new argument. Their actions had helped develop the city's cultural economy, but also served the purpose of reviving real estate values in previously declining areas. 1970 saw the formation of the Soho Artists Association and rekindled the push for changes that would give those living in lofts the sanction of law. Artists' organizing bore fruit in 1971. Changes to the city's zoning ordinance and New York State's multiple-dwelling law created a special district in Soho that allowed certified artists to live in the area, provided they were licensed to do so by the Department of Recreation and Cultural Affairs. In 1973, Soho's cast-iron historic district, one designation from the city's Landmark Commission, preserving the area's built environment and giving it prominence and prestige as an architectural gem. The Soho artists were able to surf the wave of the backlash against proposed urban renewal projects, such as the Lower Manhattan Expressway and New York University expansion projects, which would have decimated Soho and negatively affected surrounding areas. One such urban renewal project was the middle-income co-operators of Greenwich Village, or MICOV which advocated the demolition of Soho and its rebuilding as a housing project. In response, Professor Chester Rapkin produced a report, sponsored by the City Planning Commission, which argued that Soho's small businesses functioned as important industrial incubators that produced essential jobs for New York's working-class African-American and Latino populations. This report was a significant factor in Soho being saved from the My Cove wrecking ball. Between 1945 and 1970, Plans to construct the Lower Manhattan Expressway through the heart of Soho remained in place. The threat of the project suppressed local investment, but allowed artists to find vacant lofts at cheap rent levels. By renovating industrial lofts that policymakers viewed as slums, artists produced a new use for vacant industrial space. In lobbying for the regularisation of the residential loft, Soho artists posited a new post-industrial future for New York that did not rely on slum clearance or urban renewal. Soho artists were not the first people to live in former industrial structures, but they were novel in their approach to establishing this practice on a wide scale, taking the investment risk, putting in physical labour to convert factories into residential lofts, and fighting the political battles necessary to legalise the process. The success of the movement to defeat the construction of the Lower Manhattan Expressway is a perfect example of grassroots community action, and solidarity in the face of overwhelming odds. Between 1947 and 1970, the most powerful civic leaders in New York, including Robert Moses and several of the city's mayors, had pushed to construct the 10-lane Lower Manhattan Expressway along Broom Street and through the heart of Soho. These efforts intensified in the early 1960s, just as Soho's artists' community had started to grow. The LME was a similar project to various other highway projects in New York, including the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, Grand Central Parkway, and the Cross Bronx Expressway, created under the guidance of master builder Robert Moses. These projects had spurred growth, but had destroyed older residential and business communities in the process. Robert Moses was an influential urban planner and high-ranking civil servant who pervaded governmental life in New York State for the majority of the 20th century, despite never being elected to public office at any point in at various points, he served as an appointed New York Secretary of State, chairman of the New York State Council of Parks, and between 1942 to 1960, New York City Planning Commissioner. In the post-war years, he was effectively New York's representative in Washington for construction and development matters, having been given a wide remit under Mayor William O'Dwyer. Moses was responsible for many of New York State's expressways, parkways, and other highways. However his political influence declined as the 1960s progressed, and his involvement with certain projects, including the demolition and redevelopment of the city's historic Pennsylvania station in Midtown, enraged his opponents, many of whom openly criticised Moses' apparent hostility towards development of public transportation in the city. Many of the parkways and expressways constructed under Moses' authority were seen to inhibit the expansion of the subway network in New York. He faced accusations at various points in his career, of making recreational developments such as public schools, parks and playgrounds inaccessible to anyone without ownership of privately owned automobiles, the implication being that there was a deliberate attempt on his part to exclude working class and lower middle class families and others from more affluent white neighbourhoods. This point is argued by author Robert Caro in his 1974 award-winning biography of Robert Moses titled The Power Broker, Robert Moses and the Fall of New York which won the Pulitzer Prize in 1975. Moses's weaning influence was evident in his field attempts to implement the Lower Manhattan Expressway through Soho in the 1960s. Other than Moses, the leading proponent of the Expressway was David Rockefeller, president of Chase Manhattan Bank and brother of Governor Nelson Rockefeller. Rockefeller headed one of the city's most powerful planning organisations, the Downtown Lower Manhattan Association, or DLMA, which counted among its members... Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley, American Express, and Goldman Sachs. Rockefeller viewed Soho as a depressed economic valley between the high-priced areas of Midtown and the Wall Street financial district to the south. Efforts to build the expressway ran parallel with efforts to renew Soho through the construction of housing projects such as MyGove, which had prompted Chester Rapkin's report. The incentive to create the expressway was supposedly to ensure Manhattan would be able to compete with suburban areas by facilitating faster and more convenient car travel and to enable the expansion of the financial district northwards. This came at a time where conservative emphasis was on suburbanization and an increasing antipathy to inner-city residential living. DLMA efforts inspired grassroots resistance from residents and business owners in Soho, many of whom had seen the negative consequences of urban renewal and similar infrastructure projects in other neighbourhoods. The looming spectre of the expressway had immediate negative consequences for Soho. Faced with the possibility of vesting and demolition, the owners of industrial loft buildings had for decades failed to improve or maintain their properties. The project caused industrial vacancy rates to rise and rents to decrease. Curiously, these negative effects enabled artists to obtain affordable and spacious living space. In 1962, the Board of Estimate had deferred a vote for acquiring land for the construction of the Lower Manhattan Expressway. Robert Moses left many of his state-level posts to accept a position as head of the 1964 World Fair project. In April 1963, Mayor Robert Wagner moved to table the expressway project for good, requesting the city to remove the highway from its official planning map. The City Planning Commission held a five-hour meeting to consider the proposal at which Moses and other DLMA reps were present. They argued that Soho was not living up to its commercial potential and could be revitalised by the expressway. Consequently, plans for the expressway remained on the official planning map for the city. It was only at the point of near death that the only section of the expressway ever to materialise was constructed. In 1963, the Department of Highway spent $2 million on base-level slabs to facilitate the creation of a new subway tunnel under Christie Street. Rockefeller and Moses moved to push the expressway forward. The DLMA Executive Committee met with Robert Wagner and worked with local transit authorities, over which Moses exercised influence, to present a report in favour of the project at the Board of Estimate. Social theorist and activist Jane Jacobs, author of The Death and Life of Great American Cities, which remains one of the most influential books in the history of American city planning, led the Joint Committee to stop the Lower Manhattan Expressway. The group which consisted of 28 local religious, political and civil organisations, made representations to City Hall to argue that the expressway would destroy thousands of jobs in Soho, many of which were held by black and Puerto Rican minorities that the city should be seeking to protect. As head of the West Village Association, Jacobs had previous experience in successfully fighting Robert Moses in his efforts to build an extension of Fifth Avenue through Washington Square Park in the 1950s. This experience stood the Joint Committee well in their opposition to plans for the Lower Manhattan Expressway. Preservationists had challenged the Lower Manhattan Expressway during the 1960s on the basis that it would destroy the historically and architecturally significant cast-iron buildings along Broom Street and elsewhere in Soho. The New York Times architectural critic Ida Louise Huxtable was an outspoken supporter of architectural preservation, particularly cast-iron architecture. She became a public figure in the fight against the expressway, and raised concerns in 1965 that the highway's path would destroy some of Soho's most significant cast-iron buildings, calling them the richest strand of Victorian architecture of the Civil War era in the city, and one of the best survivals of the Iron Age in the country. Mayor Wagner, having failed to dismiss efforts by Moses to denigrate Soho as a blighted area with abundant vacancies, fires and building code violations, allowed the approval process for the expressway to move forward at the end of 1964. However, the DLMA were not able to convince an important rising star in New York politics, the progressive congressman John Lindsay, of the value of the expressway. In previous episodes, we've mentioned John Lindsay in the context of his efforts to remove the draconian cabaret card requirements for performing jazz musicians in the city, and his involvement on the planning committee for the 1972 Newport Jazz Festival. When Congressman Lindsay ran for mayor in 1965, he made the Lower Manhattan Expressway an election issue, and through his support behind its opponents, Lindsay was elected mayor in November 1965. Lindsay had used New York's Landmarks Preservation Law in his efforts to stop the expressway from being built. In February 1966, one month after taking office, Lindsay led the Board of Estimate in ratifying the landmark designation of the E.V. Haugwat Building, a commercial building constructed in 1857 at the corner of Broome Street and Broadway that stood in the path of the expressway. The particular cast-iron structure of the building, necessitated by facades facing two separate streets, has led many to speak of the building as a prototype for 20th century skyscrapers. Its landmark status was approved, and the New York Times later claimed the will to avert the destruction of this particular building was the singular factor that tipped the scales against the construction of the lower Manhattan expressway. The building's value as a work of art in and of itself was sufficient to justify its existence, and it effectively operated as a talisman to safeguard the entire neighbourhood of Soho. By May 1966, information had leaked that the expressway was out under the new administration. By July 1965, Lindsay had removed Robert Moses from his post as City Arterial Highway Coordinator, leaving plans for the expressway seemingly dead in the water. There was still time enough for one last death rattle. After being elected, Lindsay did roll back somewhat on his anti-expressway election promises. Attempting to forge a compromise by developing plans for a four-lane expressway that would travel partially through tunnels and open cuts that were below ground level but uncovered The Mayor hoped this would prevent the community disruption that would come with an elevated highway. The plan drew strong objections from local residents and political leaders, including Councillor and future Mayor Ed Koch, who spearheaded protests. Despite local objections in March 1968, the Board of Estimate approved Lindsay's plan in principle, as did state and federal agencies. The DLMA supported the new plans in public hearings at the City Planning Commission. Activist Jane Jacobs was charged with disorderly conduct after storming the stage of a hearing on the roadway plans at the New York State Department of Transportation in April 1968. By that point, opponents of the expressway realised that the new highway plan would decimate Soho's burgeoning artistic community, offering them new ammunition to relaunch their objections. It was ultimately the potential for environmental damage and the risk to public health that saw plans for the expressway permanently shelved, Using data collected from the Department for Air Resources in 1968, a group named the New York Scientists' Committee for Public Information found that air quality near the proposed highway would be hazardous to the health of nearby residents, with dangerous levels of carbon monoxide poisoning. More extensive studies were undertaken by the Department for Health, Education and Welfare. By March 1969, Mayor Lindsay asked for federal funds to study alternative roadway proposals, to reroute traffic across the southern tip of Manhattan. This project had the backing of many of the Lower Manhattan Expressway's opponents. At the mayor's urging, the Lower Manhattan Expressway was removed from the official planning map of New York by the City Planning Commission in August 1969. By preventing the Expressway's construction, anti-urban renewal forces saved Soho for its loft residents, gallery owners and entrepreneurs to build a new type of residential neighbourhood, When the threat of the expressway lifted, Soho experienced a commercial renaissance based on investment in its undervalued loft buildings. Efforts to build the expressway had ultimately played a significant part in priming the built environment for habitation by the artistic community. The entire neighbourhood of Soho became a registered landmark in 1973. This designation meant that approximately 500 buildings in the area could not be demolished or altered without the approval of the Landmarks Preservation Commission. The importance of Soho as a cultural centre point for New York in the 70s cannot be underestimated, not only for the former industrial area itself, but for the growth of musical and arts-based venues in the surrounding areas. Soho was home to the jazz lofts of Ornak Coleman's Artist's House on Prince Street, Ali's Alley on Green Street, operated by Rashid Ali, Enveron, established by Dave Brubeck's sons, Chris and Danny, and Axis on West Broadway, Studio Rivby run by Sam and B. Rivers, was situated at Bond Street, just off Soho's northeast corner. After its initial run at the Mercer Arts Centre, the Experimental Arts Collective at The Kitchen moved into Soho, at the corner of Worcester and Broome Street, where they remained until 1986. David Mancuso's immersive disco house party night at The Loft was originally situated at 647 Broadway on Soho's northeast corner, before moving into the heart of Soho at 99 Prince Street, 1975. The second iteration of Nicky Ciano's revered Disco Night at the Gallery opened in November 1974 at 172 Mercer and Houston Street on Soho's east side. Looking ahead to the late 1970s, the art rock luminaries of New York coalesced around the Mud Club on White Street, close to Soho's southern boundary. Jean-Michel Bascat and Madonna both lived on Crosby Street in Soho in the early 1980s, as did many other aspiring artists. Mural artist Keith Haring staged regular exhibitions in the galleries of Soho, which bloomed during the 1970s, becoming the backbone of the local art scene. Some of the early Soho art galleries were outposts of the established Midtown galleries, located between East 57th and East 59th Street off Madison Avenue. Richard Fagan, who ran a reputable gallery on 81st Street and Madison Avenue, was the first to open a gallery in the Soho neighbourhood, on Green Street in 1967. Doing so eliminated the inconvenience of having to rent warehouse space for storage and the corresponding requirement to take potential buyers to multiple locations to view and buy art. Ivan Karp, a former salesman for Leo Castelli, famed for selling pop art, established the O.K. Harris Gallery at 465 West Broadway in 1969 an abandoned warehouse with 7,000 square feet of space to operate with. Max Hutchinson, an Australian gallery owner, moved into 127 Green Street in 1969, and the Rhys Pally Gallery opened at 93 Prince Street in 1970. In 1971, the massive warehouse at 420 West Broadway was occupied by the Uptown establishment. The building was originally scoped out by The Hague Art Delivery, a company founded by two Dutch-American partners, to and Wouter Germans, who contracted regularly with Leo Castelli's gallery. The company's main job was moving art for midtown art dealers. Due to the massive size of some of the contemporary American art, the company needed substantial warehouse space to fulfil its obligations. Their first engagement was to move and store James Rosenquist's 86-foot-long pop art masterwork F-111. The painting eventually sold for $2.1 million at a Sotheby's auction in 1986. After their previous warehouse space uptown at 108th Street was condemned to make way for a housing development that was never constructed, they were informed about the vacant building at 420 West Broadway. They convinced Midtown Gallery owners Andre Emmerich, Leo Castelli, Ileana Sonabend, and John Weber, formerly of Midtown's Duane Gallery, to buy floors in the building. In this way, they secured the $275,000 needed to acquire ownership. Before moving to Soho, Leo Castelli's gallery in Midtown held the first solo shows by Robert Rauschenberg and Jasper Johns in 1958 and the first Frank Stella and Cy Twombly exhibitions in 1960. The gallery also held the first exhibit of Roy Lichtenstein's large-scale comic book paintings in 1962 and the first exhibitions of minimalist sculptor Donald Judd. Many of these artists exhibited at Castelli's Gallery in Soho in its first season, with composer Philip Glass performing concerts at gallery events. Sales were significant, with Castelli's Gallery selling art to the value of $2.5 million in 1976, the equivalent of over $10 million in today's money. The Paula Cooper Gallery in Soho was the first to open, which did not have a connection to a pre-existing midtown establishment. She looked to open a new downtown gallery and saw the open loft spaces of Soho as ideal for establishing a new, fluid style of gallery where collectors, artists and visitors could mingle comfortably, close to where the artists on display actually live. In 1968, Cooper rented two lofts on the third floor of 96 to 100 Prince Street, next to Finelli's bar. She focused her energies on converting the 5,000 square feet of industrial loft space into a functioning art gallery to display a painting and sculpture. The challenge she faced, along with other gallery operators, was to convince the uptown art crowd to come downtown. On October 22nd, 1968, her first exhibition was an art benefit for the Student Mobilisation Committee to end the war in Vietnam. The show included work by Soho resident Donald Judd, Saul LeWitt, Carl Andre and Dan Flavin. Paula Cooper's efforts and that of other gallery operators triggered an explosion of art display in Soho. By 1973, there were over 80 galleries in the neighbourhood. The art world moving downtown meant it became more accessible, community-orientated, interdisciplinary, and visitor-friendly. The model of the Soho Gallery, large, high-ceilinged, white-walled rooms, became the standard image that most people today would associate with an art gallery. Art dealers began to place a greater emphasis on being close to where the artists lived, something that had never happened before in the city, despite the expansion of modern art in the post-war period. The focus before had always been on being in close proximity to neighborhoods convenient to high-end art buyers or art institutions such as the famous museums. This led to the creation of a distinct arts community where more space was available at cheaper rents. At the same time, commercial and cooperative performance art institutions presented performance art, dance, and music created by diverse artists in Soho, including the Jazz Lofts we discussed in earlier episodes, dance companies and businesses which developed to cater for art tourists in the area, including retail and hospitality. Artists' cooperative galleries were established to show local artists' works on a not-for-profit basis. Members dues covered monthly rent. Artists hung their own art, cleaned the gallery and handled their own publicity, but the galleries themselves did not derive any profit from art which was sold in these co-ops. Many co ops received substantial funding through grant subsidies from governmental organizations such as the New York State Council of the Arts and the National Endowment for the Arts. Beginning with the opening of 55 Mercer and the Ward Nass Gallery in 1969, cooperative galleries and non profit organizations flourished in Soho, with 112 Workshop and the Prince Street Gallery opening in 1970, followed by AIR and the Kitchen in 1971. Given the extent to which these organisations were funded by government subsidies, the seals of art to visitors was not essential for their survival. This model appealed to the countercultural and anti-capitalist tendencies of many of the artists involved in the SOHO co-ops. AIR promoted itself as the first cooperative gallery of female artists in the United States, and worked to provide greater opportunities for women to present their work in what was a male-dominated industry. One survey presented at the gallery's opening reported that 94.5% of showings at leading New York galleries were of male artists' work. There was a complete absence of major one-woman shows at esteemed venues such as the Metropolitan Museum of Art and the Guggenheim Museum. Like many other co-ops, AIR's founding members helped build and paint the walls of the gallery, rewired the electrics, removed rusted pipes and radiators, and contributed funds to complete complicated renovations. Through this labour and financial contribution, members then gained the entitlement to participate in the schedule of showings throughout the year. SOHO's cooperative galleries benefited from a favourable climate for arts funding at federal and state level. SOHO artists' colonies began to coalesce in the years following the establishment of the National Endowment of the Arts in 1965. The NEA grew out of governmental efforts during the Cold War to highlight American artists' freedom and celebrated status as a counterpoint to the struggles of Soviet artists. President Richard Nixon increased NEA funding from $7 million in 1968 to $64 million in 1974, just as the first galleries were opening in Soho. Likewise, Governor Nelson Rockefeller increased the budget of the New York State Council of the Arts from $2.2 million to $20.1 million in 1972. By 1977, 50% of AIR's budget came from governmental subsidies. There was an initial reluctance on the part of the NEA to fund avant-garde art, the original ethos of the organisation being to protect and enshrine more traditional Western art forms. However, under Presidents Jimmy Carter and Gerald Ford, the NEA began to fund feminist art, performance art and video art, all of which were abundant in Soho at the time. There was also a disproportionately high level of funding for New York artists compared to the rest of the United States, which only served to amplify the city's cultural importance at this time and to attract artists to live in the city, notwithstanding the multitude of other economic problems the city faced. Sociologist Sharon Zukin identifies the availability of grant funding at state and federal levels as being central to regularising artists' employment and bringing them more solidly into the middle class. This helped to effectively legitimise loft living as a trendy lifestyle, making it more attractive to other members of the middle class, who then looked at the settled post-industrial lofts of Soho as an ideal new form of home in the city. The success of the artists in creating a new form of urban redevelopment paved the way for the gentrification that would ultimately price them out of the neighbourhood towards the end of the 1970s. The Experimental Performance Venue 112 Workshop was founded in 1970 by Geoffrey Liu and Gordon Matta-Clark at 112 Green Street in Soho. The site of an abandoned rag recycling factory. Painters and sculptors, but also dancers and musicians flocked to 112 Workshop as they were given free rein to use the space in any way they wished. The gallery hosted exhibitions by Richard Serra, avant-garde dance choreographed by Suzanne Harris, experimental theatre by Mabo Mines and musical performance by the Philip Glass Ensemble. 112 Workshop functioned as a proving ground for groundbreaking artists were often poached by the larger galleries or established theatres based on their success. Partly for this reason, the New York State Council of the Arts generously funded 112 Workshop because it offered a variety of abstract art and avant-garde performance that was absent from the more established commercial venues. In 1976, NEA grant funding represented 87% of the venue's total income. Dance performance also grew throughout Soho during the early 1970s, with the expansive loft spaces suited to the performers' needs. In 1974, the Bird Hoffman Foundation established their headquarters at 147 Spring Street in Soho, initially for the purpose of promoting the experimental dance and theatre of Robert Wilson, who co-wrote Einstein on the Beach with Philip Glass. Gallery owners like Paula Cooper, a non-profit venue such as The Kitchen, which we discussed in our last episode, also hosted dance troupes. Choreographer Meredith Monk, Regularly staged musical and dance performance at her home at 228 West Broadway in Tribeca. Now adjacent to the curious New York landmark of the Ghostbusters headquarters, the frequency of performances in Monk's home led to her group earning the moniker The House. On September 11th, 2001, while performing in Germany, Bjork performed Meredith Monk's piece Gotham Lullaby in dedication to the city of Manhattan on the day of the 9-11 attacks on the World Trade Center. This episode is largely derived from an excellent book by Princeton professor Aaron Scuda, titled The Lofts of Soho, Gentrification, Art and Industry in New York, 1950-1980. to 1980. In the second half of this season on New York in the 1970s, which we'll complete at some point in the future, we'll return to examine how artistic residence in Soho was compromised by a combination of economic factors and the failure of legal regulations to keep up with the pace of economic changes in the city. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with our final episodes in this half of the season, examining the birth of hip-hop and disco in New York in the early 1970s.